Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charles Roberts. And before we actually get into our question and then our question behind the question, I want to note that this recording is taking place on July 5th, 2018, the day after Americans celebrate the founding of the country, uh, Independence Day. And Charles, what does that have to do with our topic today? Well, of course, this time of year and on this occasion, when people aren't blowing up fireworks and that sort of thing, uh, they might pause to ask themselves, uh, how do I know if I'm being a good citizen? Patriotism and uh, waving the flag are all uh, over the place uh, around July 4th and, frankly, a lot of other times throughout the year. And citizenship and being a good citizen are uppermost in a lot of people's minds. Our media elite tell us that we should be good citizens. Our politicians tell us this. Many pastors tell us this. So how do I know if I'm being a good citizen? But behind that question is something even more profoundly significant. And that question is, to whom or to what do I owe my ultimate allegiance? Now, The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans 13, in verse 1, he says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And he goes on from there to talk about a lot of other things. And so, some people might be under the impression, because this passage would be quoted to them, that being a good citizen means being subject to the governing authorities. But we have to step back from that statement for a moment, and really to step back from the entirety of the New Testament and realize that these documents, and especially uh, the writings of Paul in an area such as this topic, don't come to us in a vacuum. And it is far too easy for us to read into these texts assumptions and ideas that really did not exist in those days, and we're looking at it through 21st century eyes, so to speak. And, you know, we have had this idea for many years in the evangelical churches that the teachings of Scripture are primarily about how we, quote-unquote, get saved and go to heaven and avoid going to hell. That's all well and good that we know that. But typically, there's not been much connection between what we read in Holy Scripture and the issues relating to so-called secular society, such as what does it mean to be a good citizen? But when we step back and we take a good hard look at what was going on on the ground in which these writings have come to us, The issues of citizenship, of government, of state authority were all over the place. They were writ large, and it is only because of our blindness to these things that we don't see it. Paul frequently uses the term citizenship in many of his other letters. And it's not, uh, okay, he says things like, uh, our citizenship is in heaven. But the fact that he chose that particular Greek word, that was a word in common use in Roman society, that any Roman would immediately hear this term and think of being a citizen of Rome. So citizenship had a profound political implication in that context, even as Paul was using it. So that's a little bit of the background of this question, how can I know if I'm being uh, a good citizen? So let me throw it back to you, Andrea, and get some of your thoughts at this point. 
Well, a couple of things. First of all, I don't think Paul was decrying citizenship. As a matter of fact, he used the fact that he was a Roman citizen to his advantage, which actually got him to Rome, where ultimately along the way he got a chance to share the gospel message and share his testimony. So the whole idea of being a citizen is kind of like what we talk about in other things, there's going to be an inescapable aspect to it. You're going to be a citizen of something. And so your question behind the question is, what's the order of our allegiance? Because every individual has allegiance. We have allegiance to our parents when we're younger. We have allegiance to our spouse and our extended family. We're members of a church. We have allegiance to the church. We live in cities and counties and states and we have uh, a national government. If our allegiance to all of them is equal, we're really talking about an impossibility. So what's the overarching citizenship that we must embrace as Christians in order to be righteous before God? I think that's a, a really important thing to discuss. And Paul, as I just mentioned, has already answered that question for us in a very significant way when he spoke to the Christians of his day in the letters that he wrote. And he used, as I said, that very terminology, your citizenship is in heaven. Now, sometimes that type of terminology can be misunderstood and somewhat otherworldly way. Like, you know, we don't have anything to do with this world. Our ultimate goal, our ultimate purpose is to get to heaven, and that's where we'll all reign, be good citizens, and that sort of thing. But the fact is, what he has in mind there and where our citizenship intersects with where we are now is the fact that, yes, we live in this world. But by the way, all of creation belongs to God. And so, we are first and foremost his possession if we are among his people, but we find ourselves in a fallen world situation that claims to have rival citizenship. You know, this is the thing that we find going on at the very beginning after the fall of humanity is we have rival claims of authority, rival claims to power, rival worldviews. But there is only one that is true and proper and good and right and the one to which we are accountable and beholden. If we look at the example of the older church, the Old Testament church in the nation of Israel, there really was not much of a distinction between being a citizen of God's kingdom, and there really was no idea of what we today would think of a secular government. So the first and foremost allegiance and loyalty that any Christian, anyone who claims to follow Jesus as Lord, Savior, and King is to him, and him primarily and exclusively. You know, it's like the word sovereign. If something is sovereign, nothing else can be. It's an exclusive term. And so is the same thing with our allegiance. So now, let's take it back to 2018 and flag-waving. I mean, to give you an idea of how marketable the American flag is, not only is it on our postage, but in my neighborhood, Realtors on national holidays will have their business card attached to a small American flag, and they'll go up and down the street and plant it in everybody's lawn. After 9-11, anybody who was not originally from this country born here but had a business would have flags outside to demonstrate to people that they liked America. And you could always tell, kind of in a funny way, 
that English wasn't their first language because instead of saying God bless America on some of them, it was God blesses America. So the whole idea was in order for you to accept me, I have to say I'm a good American. Well, don't you think a lot of believers have sort of merged being a good American and being a good Christian and that they're really both the same thing, but they have political alignments with that. In other words, if I'm a good Christian, I need to be a good conservative. Or if I'm a good Christian, depending on their orientation, I need to be for the social gospel and, and, and liberating people regardless of whether or not we talk about sin. So I think there's been a syncretism where people have taken political affiliation and merged it with the Bible and basically operate first with the political inclination motivating how they view the Bible. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree with it, and it goes to the very heart of what I said at the very beginning, in that you had this clash of kingdoms going on in the time in which Paul was writing and living and carrying on his ministry, and as well as the other early apostles. The difference is, though, is that they came into and were thrust into a governmental kingdom situation that was thoroughly pagan. Rome didn't make any pretenses at being Christian or biblical. The challenge that Christians in these United States, at least, have had to face is that most of us, for a hundred years or more, have grown up in an environment that at least has been nominally Christian, in which, you, as you indicated, the Bible and the flag go hand in hand, and many Christian churches have American flags in them. But the fact is that our nation uh, has never been, quote-unquote, officially Christian, in an explicit sense in which Christ as king is spelled out in our constitutional documents and, and that sort of thing. On the other hand, at the very beginning of the founding of our nation, it is undeniable that the principles of biblical Christianity were at the heart of that and that most people operated according to the basics of God's law. And so, in one sense, it could be said that we had a Christian nation. But frankly, I don't know how anyone who understands the clear teachings of God's Word and God's law especially, can look at modern America and think that this is in any way, shape, or form a Christian nation. And let me just say one other thing. We find ourselves using terms like Americans think this or America that. I heard a discussion between a couple of people online podcast in which the term propositional nation was being used. And the idea there is that I can come up with a proposition like green elephants Green elephants live on the far side of the moon. That's a propositional statement. It's not necessarily true or false, but it's just a propositional statement. Well, the same with this idea of Americans. What, what exactly are we supposed to mean and understand by a statement like that? We think we know what it means, but the fact is that there are people who live in communities and households all across the boundaries and borderlines of these United States and they're very different from each other. They have very different assumptions and ideas. So there really isn't this common assumption and belief system that encompasses everybody who is, quote-unquote, an American. And I think that's the key to unraveling this puzzle. Let me say that there's no time in biblical history where there was not a manifestation of a conflict of governments. In the Garden, Satan proposed one kind of government— in opposition to God's form and requirements of government. And all the way down the road in Old Testament times, you have the people of God running into 
other groups, other nations attempting to oppress them because there was a conflict of world vision. In other words, what did the Hebrew people say was most important and where their allegiance should be and where did these other groups? And so what happens is there's conquering. You can conquer from the outside and annihilate everybody or you can conquer and then decide we'll let you keep a little bit of what you have but ultimately your allegiance has to be with us and so if you even think of the pledge of allegiance and how many christians are horrified when somebody says we don't want to say the pledge have they ever examined which book of the Bible the Pledge of Allegiance comes from? I doubt that they have, because they won't find it. <laughs> have they even looked? Uh, probably not. Right. Now, the original pledge did not have the crumbs that were thrown that said, under God, one nation under God. The original pledge didn't have that. I think that phrase was added in the 50s. But if you think of the Pledge of Allegiance, the first thing, and you put it in order of importance, I pledge allegiance to the United States of America. That's, of course, represented by this flag. So I pledge allegiance to the flag, the symbol of the United States of America. Well, I don't know about you, but it's I can't say that. Because the United States of America means different things at different times, and like you said, Americans think this, Americans think that. Everybody in my family doesn't think the same way. So you can't even say the Schwartzes all think the same because we don't. So it's very presumptuous, but it's a way in which for the state to dominate people by letting them think we all really do agree. And it might be helpful, especially in light of the issue of the Pledge of, of Allegiance, to give just a very brief background in that the Pledge of Allegiance was something crafted by a Baptist from upstate New York, I believe, who happened also to be a socialist by the last name of Bellamy. The whole purpose of the pledge, and, I, and while those Christians who never bothered to look up where the Pledge of Allegiance is found in the Bible, they might, when they, if they rush to their Bibles to do that, they might also look up the origin of the Pledge of Allegiance they will find that the whole project in putting that thing together was to make sure that the children of those here in the southeastern United States where I live following the war between the states, who would, of course, be in government-run schools, would never, ever get the idea again that a state could secede from the Union, that there could be anything more powerful than the federal government. The Pledge of Allegiance was designed to make sure there would not be this type of independent thinking, the very type of thinking that gave birth to these United States to begin with that we have supposedly celebrated on July 4th. It has all the hallmarks of that very thing. And as a matter of fact, there was actually sort of a Nazi-style salute that originally people saluted the flag with. Instead of putting your hand over your heart, you raised your uh, hand forward in what would eventually be co-opted. Well, the Romans actually used that salute in their day then that goes right along with what we're saying. <laughs> you know, the, the, the Roman state was the all-authoritarian state, the most powerful ruling office on the face of the earth. Caesar is God. The state is God. And you will salute the great Senate and people of Rome. Of course, Hitler and the Nazis took that same salute. I don't think when the 
pledge was put together, there was anything like a Nazi party. But the whole idea of pledging your allegiance to the almighty state, the idea that there is one, one voice, one government, and you can't have these separate states. We, we must not think that way. That's sort of the background of, of where that, that whole thing came from. But while we're talking about this subject of citizenship, and another thing that people often don't understand as it relates to the writings of Scripture we are exhorted to obey the authorities, as, as Paul says in Romans 13. The idea behind that is that the ultimate authority, all types of authority, are accountable to God alone. He is the true voice of authority. So those who are in authority of, over us, be it in the church, be it in the family, be it in the state, they are under equal obligation to be accountable to God's law. Now, another thing that Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.1 he writes, therefore, I exalt, first of all, that supplications and prayers and intercessions be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Well, you know, our, uh, our well-meaning evangelical Christians who might be enraged at some of the things we're talking about would say, well, there you go. You're supposed to be praying for the president and the governor and the mayor. And it's Dr. Rushduni who pointed out in his great little book, The Atheism of the Early Church, that intercession... That, that intercession referred to by Paul there was an ultimate slap in the face. It was a throwing down of the gauntlet to Caesar and the state of Rome. Because only the, the state only had the power of intercession. And for the Christians to claim that they could intercede on behalf of the Roman government officials, that clearly told the Roman officials, there is another authority besides you. And he was even more audacious than that in as much as you didn't have to be a high-ranking person to intercede with God on behalf of Caesar. You could be a woman, you could be a man, you could be rich, you could be poor, you could be a slave, you could be free. In other words, clearly the Christians were manifesting that they had a primary citizenship and that their citizenship or affiliation to Rome was secondary to that primary one. So let me ask you then, Andrea, if I could uh, throw this question at you uh, in light of what we've been talking about. How ought to Christians behave in a society such as we find ourselves in, who take their heavenly or kingdom citizenship clearly and want to keep a proper balance and perspective of where their true allegiance lies? I mean, what would be some of the ways that that looks in practical day-to-day -day living? Well, first and foremost, it involves understanding that the word citizen is very much tied to the word law, authority, sovereign, as, if you, as you mentioned. So that means to be a citizen, you must know the laws of the domain, of the dominion of which you're under. So for most, it would first of all mean, let's find out what the king of kings and the lord of lords has to say about all sorts of aspects of life. Now, I've taught biblical law classes primarily to women and young people for over 20 years. And I can't tell you how many longtime Christians will say, I had no idea that God spoke about that. God cares about that. I go, yeah, God cares about not only a lot of things, he cares about everything. If all the hairs of your head are numbered and a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground unless he okays it, it behooves us to find out what makes our sovereign pleased 
and what makes him displeased. So the first thing is appreciating that this kingdom called the kingdom of God has laws. And for you to be on the right side of things, it isn't because you lifted your hands once and said an emotional prayer. It's that being brought into the family of God, becoming a citizen of heaven and earth means that we take seriously every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Once you have that as a foundation, then there are plenty of people who have talked about this over the centuries that talked about how you advance this dominion realm of Christ. You don't do it by taking up swords and slashing heads. That's how the other guys do it. How the Christian does it is by means of regeneration where the gospel is shared, the gospel is preached, the gospel is lived out, and then others whom God calls will say, wait a minute, this is the group I want to gravitate towards. So it's not a slam, bam, thank you, ma'am, we can have this all done by next Tuesday. It takes a commitment to be faithful where you are and knowing what faithfulness means. Yes, and uh, the idea that, uh, going back to Paul's statement in Philippians and Ephesians 2, where he refers to our citizenship as heavenly, I think the key thing for us to understand is that it is not as some people have assumed that that means, you know, we're just, we're just pilgrims passing through. We're strangers walking in, in this land on our way to heaven. It doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that as citizens of Christ's kingdom of heaven, we are ethically and by law not at home in this particular world because it is not currently governed by that law in its most practical outworkings. If I might interrupt, think sure, yeah. of the term that we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Well, let's take it today. If you're an ambassador, let's say, to Ecuador, when you go and you are in Ecuador and you're in your embassy, are you free to disregard the laws of your country? No, you're there representing your country. For you to be espousing a law that's different than the country that sent you as an ambassador would make you treasonous to that country. Well, when Jesus left the earth and left the Great Commission as the operating instructions, he basically said, you're going to be my ambassadors. So know my laws because that's what you're going to be there to promote. And I think that we've had a huge disconnect because people have really come to the conclusion, unfortunately, by a lot of bad church teaching, that we have these separate areas of life, and it's okay if we're religious in this area, meaning Christian religion, but in the other areas, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter where you go to school. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how you spend your money. In other words, God doesn't care about those things. Well, only you can come to that conclusion if you don't take God's word seriously. And that word that you used in the sentence there, ambassadors or ambassador, that is another word uh, along with citizenship, along with rule or rulers, along with governors and kings that we find all through the New Testament that have very profound political and civil implications. And even the term apostle, for example, is a term from the Greek that had been in wide usage across the Roman Empire long before the Christians began using it. And the apostle was the one who went through the various 
places in the empire, if the Caesar, if the emperor was going to make an official state visit to that particular colony or that particular province, uh, he would send forth his apostles, his apostolos, his ambassadors, to proclaim the fact that he was coming and that this is the great Caesar who has paved the roads and brought peace to the empire. And so this idea that there are these other ambassadors, these other apostles, who are doing that same function on behalf of a different king, a different government, a different kingdom, well, you see, it has profound implications in the political realm. And the challenge that we face in terms of being good citizens is to recognize that you could, by modern American definitions, be, quote-unquote, a good American citizen, and at the same time be a very, very poor Christian and follower of God's law. And that's the crux of Dr. Rushduni's book, Chariots of Prophetic Fire. He's pointing out that in Elijah's day and Elisha, two prophets that were dealing with the kingdom of Israel. Remember, after Solomon, the kingdom split. You had the kingdom of Judah and you had the kingdom of Israel. And Rashduni makes the point in this book that Judah was apostate in many times and places, but that the kingdom of Israel never viewed itself as apostate. They thought they were good followers of God, but they had blended state religion or Baal worship, which is the same thing, and their view of God's law and God's covenant. And so they ended up with this hybrid that was much more statist than it ever was biblical. And I think that's the situation we have today, that it's very hard for some people to separate out their political views and religious views, and where God's law doesn't match their political views, they decide that part isn't important. We don't have to follow that anymore. And sadly, they would not really understand that they needed to know what God's law has to say about political views because they think they already know based on the shallow teaching they're getting in many of their churches and especially what they're getting from the so-called conservative news media, which uh, are awash in this sort of stuff. And uh, it is a profoundly sad situation. And I, I often wonder why. Uh, well-meaning, serious, Bible-believing Christians don't ever scratch their heads and say, you know, if God's wrath was being poured out upon us as a nation, well, how, how would it look any different <laughs> than what we're seeing going on right now? Exactly. Uh, what, what is more symptomatic of judgment than mothers who have a maternal instinct instilled by God going and paying somebody to kill their children. That's not the problem. That's the symptom of God's judgment. When you let people do what they would quote-unquote naturally do, that's what it looks like. Now, you are right. It's profoundly sad. But I want to say it's also profoundly hopeful because like many times in history, biblical history specifically, people wake up when suddenly their life is not as comfortable as it used to be. So I guess the Hebrews were okay in Egypt, and they could take a, a little bit of the oppression, but when the oppression got really bad, 
then they called out to God. In the time of the judges, you know, there were times where they were like, okay, this isn't so bad. And then God sends the Philistines and the Philistines make life miserable. And then the people call out to God. So what will it take in the United States of America? I don't know, but I can tell you that there are a lot of people who are feeling the angst now and want to know, what do we do? And that's where those of us who do have the perspective that God rules over every area of life and thought have to be ready to go in and ask the provocative question that will lead to this kind of discussion. You know, your reference to uh, Dr. Rush Dooney's book, Chariots of Prophetic Fire, is a very appropriate one, and it reminds us that it is in the Older Testament that we can see the examples of how the, the, the failure to understand and appreciate what it means to be citizens of God's kingdom is worked out, where, where you have people who were taught this from the very beginning. You know, the, the Israelites were not a people in the formal sense before God called them out of Egypt, but in that context, they were already citizens of a kingdom. They were under a, an authority named Pharaoh. They had a legal system, a law system, to which they were accountable. They were called by God to leave that and come and worship him, to take on his law, to obey his rule. But the, the idea that uh, some of them would come to, you know, we're better off back in Egypt. You know, we, we don't like the way this is going. Uh, this chafes a little bit against what I think I want to be doing right now. So I'd much rather be sitting in Egypt and eating the, the bread there than having to deal with this other stuff here that I'm required to do because I'm a, ultimately accountable to God first and foremost. That's because liberty and freedom are confused terms. They wanted the freedom of security in Egypt, but they didn't have liberty in Egypt. Liberty requires work, effort, having to live with the consequences of your actions, and to too many people, the celebration yesterday of Independence Day is pretty much, I don't have to go to work, and we can go watch fireworks, or I can set off firecrackers. Do they understand that when you listen to the noisy firecrackers, that's a lot like gunshots and, and war happening around you? How many people are really up for that challenge for standing for those things that they cannot compromise, like the early church said, we will not call Caesar Lord. Well, if what we see going on all around us is any evidence, I have to say in the negative, not many are ready at all. <laughs> but as you have indicated, there is every reason for hope because the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our world and of his Christ and the plots of evil men and uninformed and poorly faithful Christians who's, uh, who, who get on the bandwagon with these same kinds of projects, all of these things will ultimately come to an end. God's law and God's word triumph over all things, and the story of history is the story of the triumph of, of God over his, his and our enemies. But, you know, it, it's a very interesting thing I wanted to just go back to for just a moment, that when the Jews were captive in Babylon, many of them were quite upset about the fact because they really perhaps didn't see any reason why they should be. You know, they thought they were God's people. They were doing everything they should. They were just having a good old time. And uh, I've often wondered, did they realize and do modern Christians realize that while you're setting off the firecrackers and waving the flag and uh, lifting up the beer and having a hot dog, 
Did you ever think that God might be just seething with wrath and anger against you and your so-called nation because of the degenerate state in which it has become? Has that ever occurred to you? Well, that's what happened to the people of Judah, and uh, they wound up being conquered by someone else and taken captive. There were a few people who realized it, you know, the Daniels, for example, the prophets who tried to get their attention, but of course they were shouted down and they had to uh, pay the consequence. So I firmly believe that God does work all things together for the good for his elect. So even the captivity in Egypt, even the captivity in Babylon, even those times, and currently it happens in many places of the world where Christians are being persecuted. God hasn't gone on vacation and doesn't know what's happening. With an eternal perspective that we do not have, God is working everything for the good. My husband and I were just reading through the account of Samson in the book of Judges. And there's so many places in that account where Samson's doing something that we're going to say, huh, why is he doing that? But the scripture says, and this was so that God could take vengeance on the Philistines. So a lot of things that we would say Samson was way off base doing, scripture's telling us that God used it to accomplish his ends. And that's why we must rejoice in the fact that if God is for us, that there's no one who could be against us and that we must walk by faith. But you can't walk by faith if you don't know the accounts of your family. You see, I have this ancestor named Abraham. I have this ancestor named Daniel. I have this ancestor named the Apostle Peter. And I look to my family history to encourage me in times of difficulty now. I think that we can say then that the idea of citizenship is an idea that helps us understand the mindset then of many of our godly forefathers and foremothers who humble themselves before the sovereign Lord and at the same time did not shy away from declaring the sovereign kingship of Christ over all nations and governments. And a Christian citizen is not going to be somebody who in a knee-jerk way equates, quote, patriotism with citizenship because the two don't always go together. It was the famous British essayist and writer, Dr. Samuel Johnson, who made the famous statement that patriotism is often the last resort of a scoundrel. You know, I'm sure you can remember, as I do, us both being baby boomers during the civil unrest of the 1960s. There were a lot of conservative Americans who put forth the statement, my country, right or wrong. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And and to me, uh, that is a horrible, horrible thing to say. I understand some of the sentiment behind it and why it was being said. But when you think about it, what Christian could possibly be happy with saying something like that or be comfortable with it? That's why I said at the outset, what's the order of our loyalty? You know, we talked about allegiance to the American flag. Well, having homeschooled my kids, I didn't have a lot of experience with Christian schools. And when I was running a homeschool choir, there were times where we looked at performance venues and somebody said, hey, why don't you have the choir go and perform for this Christian school? And it seemed like a perfectly good idea. Well, my kids had not been exposed to saying the Pledge of Allegiance because we were homeschoolers and they, they, they didn't know it by heart. I don't think any of them probably still know it by heart because they never had to say it. But then they were like, Mom, then they do the allegiance to the Christian flag. 
And that struck them as odd as well, because our allegiance isn't to a flag. Our allegiance is to someone. And the fact that the pledge to the American flag usually comes first, and then the pledge to the Christian flag comes second, how, how subtle is the idea that our loyalty is first to our country and then to God? Well, our allegiance needs to be to Jesus Christ, not to anybody's flag. And so a representation, whether it's a statue or a flag or a medal or whatever it is, we cannot lose the fact that God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, let's not get lost in the symbols and forget who he is. And if we can sort of bring things to a, a close and then make some recommendations, let me just say, if I may, by way of conclusion, that God himself has given us a citizenship in creation, in creating humanity. You know, he, he placed our, our mother and father, Adam and Eve, in that place and commanded them to exercise dominion in his name. And so we are and we were created citizens of the world, and our citizenship is not a gift of the state. It's not a gift of nature. Uh, it is from God Almighty, and it is to him ultimately to whom we are accountable. You mentioned a book a moment ago. Um, Andrew, would you care to re-mention that and anything else you'd like to recommend? And then I have a couple of things I will point our listeners to. I mentioned Chariots of Prophetic Fire, and those are studies in Elijah and Elisha. So it's actually a biblical commentary by Dr. Rush Dooney. You can find it at calcedon.edu. And there are a series of lectures that are not quite as thorough as the book, but that you would expect that. But there are a series of lectures and studies in Elijah and Elisha. So you could also listen to that. Then there is one of his books entitled Christianity and the State. He wrote that in 1986. And I recommend that in terms of getting a perspective. Like I said, you're, if you're not oriented this way, the shift is going to take a while, but the way in which you'll be able to shift your thinking is by understanding the opposing views and how much compromise there has been. Those are both excellent resources. I would only add to them the October 2004 issue of the Chalcedon Report, Faith for All of Life. That's October 2004. That entire issue was dedicated and devoted to the subject of citizenship. And some of the things that we have talked about here are gone into in much more detail by several authors, including Dr. Rushduni and Mark Rushduni and several others who were writing for the magazine at that time. Um, I would also recommend the, the little book that was discussed at the Book of the Month Club discussion just the other night called The Atheism of the Early Church. When this was being brought up for discussion, I remember Martin Sobretti making the comment that this is a very slim, thin little book. It's not even 100 pages but it is very powerful and I think one of the most important of Dr. Rushduni's books because it really gives the essence of what the whole idea of our problem with the state is if it is an ungodly, God's law-denying institution. Like I said, it's only about 75 pages or less. It can be read in one sitting. And you can also get the audio lectures that go right along with it at the calcedon.edu website as well as access the October 2004 issue of the Calcedon Report magazine. In closing, I would just like to encourage our listeners to consider accessing the resources, certainly use them online, but if you could send a donation, that would be great. 
uh, to help defray the cost of making these things available and purchase the books. That would uh, be much appreciated. Andrea, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, your comments today. Would you share with our listeners how they can reach out to us and give us, give us their thoughts or suggest topics? Sure. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is the email address that you can communicate to us with. And just to let you know, I usually include the resources that we've mentioned so that it's an easy way to connect to those links. The last thing I would like to encourage you is that it's important that we can posit victory in these areas, maybe not in our lifetime, but maybe in our lifetime. But to realize that sometimes our biggest deficit is we're afraid of victory. And we have to become a people who are not afraid of victory. I totally agree. And we will, again, thank our listeners for tuning in. And until our next Out of the Question podcast, we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.